sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we will be discussing the ravages of U.S. neoliberalism at home and imperialism abroad. Also going to be marking one year since uh, the protest inside Cuba and what that has meant for U.S. imperialism, both in that country and in the region. Also going to be having a nuclear update. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie Tell them what's on your mind. Well, as if the details we already know about the behavior of the cops in Uvalde, Texas, wasn't bad enough, video has been released that expose much, much worse than a few bad decisions and faulty equipment. Two media outlets, the Austin American Statesman and ABC affiliate KVUE, released an 82-minute surveillance video from inside the school showing the actions of the police as the massacre of the students and faculty of Robb Elementary happened. First, the fact that these outlets released the video to the public without notifying the families of the victims or allowing them to see it before it was released or even allowing them to prepare to see it when it was released, I think that's unforgivable. And there really is no journalistic excuse for publishing information like this without the victim's consideration anywhere in the decision-making process. I think that was simply foul. But what's even more foul is what the video exposes about the cops. Cops are seen literally standing in the hallway of the school as gunfire is heard in the distance. One cop is seen casually strolling to a hand sanitizer dispenser. Another is seen checking his phone. The video shows that most of the shooting occurred between the time the gunmen entered the classrooms and when the cops, including at least one who had a long gun, arrived minutes later and approached the classroom door. They were met by gunfire and retreated down the hallway where they remained, down the hallway, away from the classroom, for more than 40 minutes as more long guns arrived with ballistic shields. But even when they had more equipment, they didn't approach the classroom where the massacre was occurring. They only approached the doors again when the gunfire erupted. And then, again, with all the riot shields and high-powered weaponry, they still waited. Embattled former school district police chief Pete Arandondo said that, quote, not a single responding officer ever hesitated, even for a moment, to put themselves at risk to save the children. We responded to the information that we had and had to adjust to whatever we faced. But the video showed that the police just did not do any of those things. And we can't help but wonder now why. Why would the police act in such a clearly non-responsive way to children being murdered? I think the answer might lie in where Uvalde is and who its residents are. Mother Jones reported back in May that Uvalde is a heavily militarized area of South Texas. Roughly 80 Border Patrol agents, some of whom were off-duty, were present at the scene because many of them live in the neighborhood. Among them were members of the SWAT-like elite team known as BORTAC, or the Border Patrol Tactical Unit, who reportedly shot the 18-year-old gunman. 
Now, that's the same unit that Donald Trump deployed to Portland as part of a violent crackdown on racial justice protests in the summer of 2020 that the city's mayor, Ted Wheeler, characterized as urban warfare. And at the time, a former CPB agent told The Guardian that in her experience, Bortak were among the most violent and racist in all of law enforcement. See, Uvalde is more than 80 percent Latinx with a large immigrant population. U.S. Customs and Border Patrol responded to the shooting at Robb Elementary because it's the biggest law enforcement agency in the area. But these same cops involved in the deportation of family members from the Uvalde community were somehow expected to protect the same children from those families in that community in Robb Elementary School. We see how tragically that turned out. U.S. President Joe Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid signed a joint pledge on Thursday to deny Iran nuclear arms, a show of unity by allies long divided, not really, over diplomacy with Tehran. The undertaking part of a Jerusalem declaration crowning Biden's first visit to Israel as president came a day after he told a local TV station that he was open to last resort use of force against Iran, an apparent move toward accommodating Israel's calls for a credible military threat by world powers. At least that's the way Reuters describes Biden's visit and this agreement. Biden said, quote, we will not allow Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon. That's what he told a news conference following the signing of the declaration. But this isn't about any last resort use of force against Iran. This is all about making plans for a war with a country that the illegitimate Zionist settler colonial state Israel has always wanted. Iran has denied for years accusations from Israel and Washington that they were building nuclear weapons with their nuclear program, but developing energy projects for the country instead. But Israel, the country that secretly tried to sell nuclear weapons to the apartheid government of South Africa, remember, keeps claiming without any evidence that Iran is secretly building nukes with the goal of attacking Israel. Nuclear weapons in Israel, by the way, that they remain ambiguous about even existing since their own nuclear capabilities have been a secret they've refused to be open about since they've existed. So there's always been talk between Washington and Israel about possible preemptive war with Iran for years. Israel has made sure to keep that conversation going. And Thursday's statement then is just a codification of longstanding U.S. support for Israel's militarism and bullying under the guise of its ability to, quote, defend itself by itself. But Israel is not defending itself. It is collaborating with the U.S. government to lay the groundwork for a preemptive war against Iran. And they certainly are not doing any of this by themselves, since their partner and enabler in their Zionist crimes against humanity in the continued occupation and ethnic cleansing of Palestine is the United States government. Throw any hopes for a renewed joint comprehensive plan of action with Iran away. With this agreement with Israel, Joe Biden just set any possibilities for that on fire as well as he's further fanned the flames for yet another proxy war. 
Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to it by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We are now happy to be joined by Danny Haifong, contributing editor of Black Agenda Report, co-host of The Left Lens, and co-author of American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, a people's history of fake news from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. And you can support Danny's work at Patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. Danny, thanks so much for joining us. It's good to be back, Sean. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And it's good to have you back, Danny. And, you know, I think that to say that uh, U.S. neoliberalism at home and imperialism abroad is in crisis is something of an overstatement. I mean, even if we just look at the domestic situation in the United States, we've got millions upon millions upon millions of people either living in poverty or under threat of poverty. Uh, uh, We seem to be standing at the precipice of yet another economic recession, with some arguing that we may already be in one. And, uh, you know, rising prices of fuel and food, it just seems at every turn, uh, the masses of poor working and oppressed people in this country um, are, are watching their conditions worsen right before them. And uh, you recently published a piece about this on your Chronicles of, of Haiphong uh, substack, Danny, entitled Ghost Stories of Capitalism, Watching the Shutters of Austerity Close. And you actually told a very personal story about your own experience uh, working at a war on poverty program and uh, seeing just how the ravages of, neo, uh, of neoliberal capital can have an impact on human beings in real time. So I was hoping you could tell us some Um, Not only about that, but how you see it as connected uh, to the moment we're in right now in the U.S. Oh, for sure. For sure. So, yeah, right after I got out of college in 2013, I was a social work major. I wanted to work in a community. I thought I was going to be a union organizer because I didn't think an agency setting was for me. But union organizing work, especially at the international level, a.k.a. like the national union level, it's grueling. You have to travel all across the country. It was not something I could see myself doing at that time. So I said, let me try to get into a community agency. Hard to find those kind of jobs. So I ended up in AmeriCorps program for a couple of months. I was paid like $15,000 for the year. Only stayed there for three months. And I uh, decided to take a job at what was called a community action program uh, that served uh, the Tri-City area in the greater Boston uh, part of Massachusetts. And uh, that job paid a little under double from what I was making, but it was still a very low wage job. And I went into it because it was rooted in the community and it had this history. It was a war on poverty program. That's what cap agencies were. It was called the second generation because it was formed in the late seventies, not the mid sixties when the war on poverty started the so-called war on poverty that Lyndon Johnson waged. And in that moment of history, when these cap agencies came about, it was all a response to the so-called urban rebellions, the mainly black led rebellions in the cities, which were both an outgrowth of the racism and white supremacy that black communities face, but also the fact that a disproportionate number of black people in these communities represented what some call the quote unquote underclass, the poorest sections of the working class. And so 
I joined this organization and really saw just how much neoliberalism and austerity, especially after the 2007-2008 crisis, had basically gutted the so-called social safety net of the 60s and prior, the New Deal, the War on Poverty. All of those programs were finding themselves underfunded. And so I went into this program serving homeless individuals who were sleeping outside on the street for the most part. And the agency closed within uh, uh, just over a year of me being there. And I saw just how much the workers there who all worked in the community, some of them were volunteers, uh, just how much they struggled. They were Some of them were clients themselves. My colleague, her son, died of an overdose. My supervisor, who's from Cape Verde, she was racially profiled by the police. And every single day, uh, there were instances where the police would harass our clients because homelessness is criminalized in the United States. And we would often have to call ambulances, and we would try so hard not to have the ambulance bring, not to have the EMS service bring the police with them, whether it was calling them directly, like, hey, could you not send the police? And oftentimes they would come, they would make the situation worse. And then I was in a union as well, and I was the shop steward, a very small union, and I was in negotiations and found out in those negotiations just how much in debt this agency was trying to keep programs afloat that weren't receiving government funds anymore. The state funding, the federal funding had washed up, and that's why ultimately the agency had to close. And that's why I called it the piece watching the shutters of austerity close, because that's what austerity does. It takes everything. It, it, it shrinks government spending for the people and bloats the government spending for corporations. And that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing huge infusions of money into the corporate class, into the corporations, into the capitalist class. And we're seeing nothing, nothing at all for the people. So I wanted to show through my experience of being in such an intense environment of the poorest sections of the working class and how this poverty is completely ignored. We don't even hear the word most of the time. Joe Biden hasn't even said the word for most of his administration. And when he has, it's to to boast about a so-called child poverty tax credit that expired after one year. So this is sort of where we're at right now. We have this inflation crisis. We have the fact that the U.S. capital is clamoring to bring the overall economy into a recession to supposedly stabilize prices. And all of it is to just maximize the profits of capital while taking the most as possible, as much as possible from working people and poor people. And Danny, you relayed with your own personal experience so many uh, uh, connections uh, uh, to where the system is failing, even the people who are trying to work in the system to provide services to people. And as we are looking at, as you point out, I think the the title of the piece is so incredibly uh, uh, poignant, you know, watching the shutters of austerity close, looking at the different ways the system does not serve the people and all the ways that you mentioned as we see austerity uh, failing, crumbling uh, and this society and empire going right along with it. How can people use the lessons of your experiences to do better, to provide 
provide those kind of connective tissue services and build a system that does not do what this current system has done and is doing uh, to people not providing people any services or help right now? Yeah, well, I think it's I think there are many aspects to the approach that needs to be taken. On the one hand, we need people organizing independently and building their own dues paying organizations, their own self-sustaining organizations to help meet these basic needs. What we were doing, I mean, this is what many people don't know. A lot of cap agencies have this history where you had Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. They were working for these for an agency like this in Oakland as they were beginning to figure out how to uh, develop the Black Panther Party, how to start it. And then, of course, we know about their survival programs and what they did in the community, independent of agencies, independent of nonprofits, independent of the patronage of capital and its government. Because right now, what we're seeing is that agencies like the one I worked for, they are stripped so bare that things that, I mean, honestly, the Black Panther Party were doing, which is helping people get food, helping people get clothing, helping people get medical care. That's what we did, helping people just get to where they need to go, transportation, all of that. That's what we were trying to do. But our budget was uh, a couple of a million dollars for more than a handful of programs and staff. It was not enough to meet people's needs. And every single year, it seemed, from what I was told, housing, you know, the Department of Housing, Urban Development, HUD, which provided most of the funds, these pro these programs were getting cut more and more and more. So we need first to develop independent institutions. So people who do that kind of organizing really need to be supported. And then we need to realize that the Democratic Party is not the vehicle that we need politically to get the mass change, to get the systemic change that we need. I, I, Barack Obama was president while I was working at this agency, and all I could see were programs that were, one, necessary because of how the Obama administration bailed out the big banks. We had a whole legal department of people who were facing evictions, facing uh, a mortgage crisis, facing uh, potential loss of their home. We, we had a legal program, a shoestring legal program, three people just trying their best to help use whatever existing laws and rights people had to stop that process. And a lot of that was because people were still feeling the effects and people are still feeling the effects of 2007, 2008 economic crisis and how the Obama administration handled it. And so now we're seeing the Joe Biden administration do the same thing, a Democratic Party administration bailing out corporations, bailing out the banks, uh, doing whatever they want. Because this whole wage price spiral conversation about inflation, let's bring down wages, let's raise interest rates to put a hurt on people, put a hurt on investment, put a hurt on jobs and put the economy in a, in a recession is not going to hurt the rich. They'll contract, they'll consolidate, and then they'll get bailed out. That's how these recessions have been working. And Democrats have been more than willing to facilitate this process. So we need on the other hand, uh, at the other side of the struggle, we need to develop another vehicle, a new vehicle that working people can express their political interests and uh, begin to build the capacity uh, for political power and demanding political power. 
Definitely. And in our last few minutes, Danny, I wanted to connect this with uh, the international situation. I mean, if we look at some of these other contradictions, like, you know, uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson resigning uh, uh, recently, uh, the uh, alliance of uh, Emmanuel Macron in France lost its majority in, in the parliament as well. And of course, Joe Biden seeing his own approval numbers uh, circling the drain. I mean, how do you see uh, the international situation reflected in this uh, uh, decline in the neoliberal system? Well, I think we're seeing a real political crisis in the West because the ways that they've used economic warfare against Russia and China, because the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act is also uh, having a real role in raising inflation and just causing disruptions in the so-called supply chains. So the United States and the West are shooting themselves in the foot on the one hand, and on the other, uh, they are trying to facilitate an economic crisis worldwide in order to meet certain geopolitical objectives. So one of which is to isolate Europe and to make Europe a complete vassal of the United States' imperialist economy. And so they want to isolate Europe from Russia, which they've succeeded in doing, and now they want to also do the same with China, which was going to be far more difficult. Uh, But nonetheless, the pain is coming and already is here, really, for the United States and the West. And all of it is really in service of these very dangerous geopolitical ambitions, which is to wage this two-pronged war against Russia and China to, to build up the capacity to do so and to, as Biden says, build up these so-called alliances, right, with countries like Japan, who just suffered uh, one of its kind of earth-shattering moments when Shinzo Abe was killed, the former uh, prime minister. Uh, all of this points to the fact that internally, uh, the this Western imperialist system led by the United States is crumbling, and in large part it's crumbling because it is obsessed with expanding and maintaining an empire that no longer has legitimacy, whether it's politically, internally, or whether it's abroad, where there is no war with victory. And there also is uh, the this uh, decline in the influence that the West has in wielding its uh, economic, political, and military might. Uh, countries around the world, especially the rising giants in the East, Russia and China, they, they and their allies are not uh, willing to submit completely, totally, if at all, to the diktats of imperialism anymore. And that's going to be, I think, a growing trend. And, and it's one we'll have to watch out for because it means that the that Western imperialism will get more belligerent and desperate uh, over the coming days, weeks and months ahead. Definitely. And I mean, and in terms of, you know, the solution to this and what people should be doing, I mean, you touched on this a moment ago, but I wanted to read a paragraph from your uh, a piece about your time at the uh, War on Poverty program where you talked about, quote, Despair is a normal reaction to the disparities and crimes of the U.S. capitalist system and its cruel empire. After all, half of the population is in or at risk of poverty and the toxic stress that comes with it. But taken too far and despair can paralyze people into seeking individual solutions to collective problems of class exploitation. Working class poor and oppressed people need a vehicle that develops their power and capacity to confront exploitation collectively and educate them towards an understanding of the system of capitalism and imperialism that drives it. Barack Obama and 
now Joe Biden are teaching us that the Democratic Party is no such vehicle. And I absolutely agree that it's going to take a principled, organized and a militant movement to not only change these things, but to help, you know, shake us out of the despair uh, that these conditions would put us in. Well, we thank you so much, Danny, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're marking a year since uh, protests in Cuba and how uh, the U.S. was involved in that as part of its ongoing regime change efforts. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Cheryl Labash, co-chair of the National Network on Cuba. Cheryl, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I'm speaking to you today from Miami, Florida, on our way to Cuba. Yeah, definitely. And uh, Cheryl, we recently marked uh, a year since we saw protests pop up inside Cuba that uh, were based around serious frustrations that people were feeling around uh, the worsening conditions in the country uh, because of a coronavirus uh, uh, and what happened in terms of that and how, of course, even that is exacerbated by the overarching reality of uh, Washington's unilateral criminal black that has been dogging that country uh, uh, for decades at this point. And I mean, during that time, we saw uh, a Cuban president, uh, Miguel Diaz-Canal, going to the streets, uh, talking to the people, trying to address their concerns. But the U.S. government, in true fashion, seized upon this to really push for, you know, yet another uh, regime change reality inside Cuba that ultimately just sort of uh, uh, petered out to nothing. And so from a year on, now I'm just wondering how you've sort of seen this unfolding and how you see it factored into uh, uh, Washington's ongoing designs for the island nation. Well, I want to say this is the reason that your program and the work that you, Sean, and you, Jackie, are doing to uh, tell the truth about what's happening in the world and actually break the information blockade that people in the United States suffer under is so important, so important. Um, What happened a year ago is a continuation of something that started in 1960. The United States government actually set out in detail what it intended to do to to undermine the Cuban Revolution, and that is to create desperation. There is a State Department memo. It's the Mallory Rubottom memo. I believe it was April 6, 1960 that was uh, set out that there's support for the revolution. What we have to do is create hardship, unemployment, scarcity, uh, desperation among the Cuban people. And they haven't been able to do it. And what is insidious and criminal is that the United States government, during the pandemic, when Cuba's access to external funds to provide for the needs of the people were cut off because of the pandemic and the necessary health shutdown of international commerce. 
um, that the United States government took that opportunity and said, oh, yes, now we've got them. Now that they're suffering, we're going to make them suffer more. They instituted 55 of 243 extra harsh measures that were instituted since 2017. 55 of them were instituted during the pandemic. And I lay it now at the Biden administration that they said, okay, now's our time. I can go down in history as the one who overturned the people's revolution, the working class revolution in Cuba, because I'm going to do it. And he failed again, just like the Bay of Pigs. He failed again. And the Cuban people are resilient, resisting and continuing on their own path. So that's how I view it. That's how I view what happened. Nothing happened this year except a huge media campaign uh, sponsored here in the United States trying to flip the script and confuse people. But your program is not confused, and I thank you for that. We definitely thank you for uh, coming on and really giving context to the to to this issue because, you know, even now, uh, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said uh, that he celebrates the Cuban people and commends their indomitable determination in the face of oppression in his statement in which he claimed that he watched with admiration on July 11th, 2021, as tens of, of thousands of Cubans took to the streets to raise their voices for human rights, fundamental freedoms, a better life, on, on and on and on. And, and, said that, you know, instead of the Cuban regime welcoming the voices of the people, they've condemned hundreds of protesters to decades-long prison sentences. And of course, it is the involvement of the U.S. government in uh, the protests uh, back in July 2021 that is not mentioned by Anthony Blinken. So what do you have to say in response to uh, what people say about, well, the Cuban government have a crackdown on protesters. How do you respond to people who don't understand uh, who those protesters really were and who they were supported by? Right. Well, Cuba certainly recognizes, and and as Sean talked about, the uh, Diaz Canal was out in the streets um, right as soon as people had come out expressing their frustrations at, at what was happening because there were power outages. It's very hot in Cuba. It's summertime. Uh, and there were powder, power outages and people were, uh, you know, upset. But they weren't upset with the government. They were upset with the conditions. So, like, Blinken is talking about, um, you know, repression and that sort of thing. Really, there was no repression. If you look at the kinds of things that were done, you know, like firebombing uh, pharmacies and, and um, you know, uh, nurseries for, for children, really destroying the, the public infrastructure um, is, not, is not something that was just done by the Cuban people. It's, it's not uh, what is, it's so, like, any kind of violence or um, disturbance of that level is not known 
in Cuba. And it's not because of repression. It's because these are the people's things that, that they understand. Those are the, the places where their, their kids go. That's their pharmacy that they, you know, where they get medication. These are our public infrastructure and not something to be harmed or destroyed. And it's a proven fact that people were actually paid. There was, there was a detail of how much you would get paid if you uh, burned a police car, you know, and that, and that sort of thing. Paid by the U.S. government and agents of the U.S. government. Um, the U.S. government has no business interfering with any other country, especially Cuba. Um, these countries have a right to determine, especially Cuba, their own destiny, how the people want to run their government. Uh, this is something the Cuban people have supported on and on and on since 1959, and they su support with a vote for the new constitution. They're getting ready to vote on an update of the family code. They have actually a democratic process that I would argue is more democratic than uh, what we have here because people are actually involved in discussing and deciding what happens to them. Uh, but, but the other thing I want to talk about, and this is important and it's new, the Boston City Council yesterday passed a resolution calling for the end of the blockade. This was done over some opposition, but it was overwhelmingly passed. This joins more than 40 other areas that have passed resolutions representing more than 41 million uh, people in the United States who reject the U.S. policy. We're the ones who are blockaded here in the United States as well as the Cuban people. We have an information blockade. People's voice against the blockade isn't heard. Like on the 31st of July, there will be a caravan in Miami like there has been for two years two years across the United States, U.S. people, Cuban-Americans and supporters have come out against the blockade. And you don't see articles in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, or any of the major networks saying there are people here who support Cuba, Cuba's right to its self-determination. So I had to stick those two things in. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> Not at all, Cheryl. And, you know, you, you mentioned a moment ago about how the U.S. has no uh, business interfering in the affairs of Cuba or really any country. And I definitely tend to agree. And, you know, I feel like the, the rank and file person in the United States really may not be aware of the deep history of U.S. interference in uh, Cuba, not just over the last few decades, but actually over uh, the last several centuries, actually. I mean, you know, there was Correct. a long period where uh, the U.S. was wanting to out and out make Cuba a, a possession of the United States. And, you know, in, in the recent decades and in, in the decades since um, the revolution, I mean, that has included, you know, harboring terrorists, uh, making political prisoners out of uh, uh, Cuban people. I'm thinking of, you know, the Cuban Five uh, specifically, you know, uh, uh, who, you know, had a ultimately successful campaign to free them and things like this. And so in the U.S., the propaganda that we receive
receive is about this, you know, despotic, uh, uh, bloodthirsty uh, communist government. But not only is the reality of, of the revolution obscured from American consciousness, also the U.S. very purposefully harming the Cuban people that it claims to care about is a big aspect of that as well. The United States uses its financial might to bully and terrorize countries and businesses around the world to keep them from trading with Cuba. And then they throw up their hands and say, oh, well, see, it's, it's really democratic that people don't want to trade with Cuba. But actually, there are laws, U.S. laws, that prohibit uh, anything with more with more than 10 percent components, U.S. components, from being traded with Cuba. You have uh, instances where during the pandemic, uh, a, a Swiss company that was under contract to sell ventilators to Cuba canceled their contract because they were acquired by a U.S. Uh, company. You have the case of, uh, for example, like Venezuela and other oil shippers who have been had their insurance stripped away from them because of the U.S. blockade. Anything to create that hardship that was mentioned, that desperation that was mentioned way back in 1960 in the uh, Mallory Rubottom uh, memorandum that, it, you know, really is still in force today. It, it's, a, uh, it's an insidious, web. Uh, that's the blockade is. But I, I want to um, talk about a little bit about somebody named Antonio Zamora, uh, a Cuban man um, who wrote a book. Unfortunately, he's dead and he can't uh, come on speaking tours because I sure would sponsor it. Um, his book's name is What I Learned About Cuba by Going to Cuba. And it reminds me so much of what is happening today, where there is a persistent uh, lie, actually, outright lie, mischaracterization of almost everything Cuba presented here in the United States. Samora wrote about his experience of going to Cuba in 1995. It, he's an interesting man. He was part of the U.S. invasion of Cuba at the Bay of Pigs. He was one of that invasion force. He was arrested. He was arrested uh, by the Cuban government. He was put in prison, rightly so, for being part of this invading force. Um, he spent two years in prison. Then when the U.S. traded food and, and milk for the prisoners, he was repatriated here. And he became one of the fierce anti-Cuba, anti-communist people in South Florida. He helped to form and support the Cuban-American National Foundation, which is patterned after APAC, the Israeli um, political action, reactionary political action uh, foundation. Um, he, he says in 1995, during the special period when Cuba was really struggling after the collapse of their major trading partners in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, in, in Miami, uh, right-wing Cubans and the political lackeys that latch onto them and get funded uh, said, well, the end is near. People are rioting in Cuba. People are writing on the walls, Fidel out. 
And his spouse said to him, well, Antonio, go to Cuba. Go to Cuba. This is happening. Go to Cuba. Well, he went to Cuba, and that's why he wrote the book, because what he found out is the Cuban-American National Foundation and that ilk in South Florida was lying to the people about what was happening in Cuba. The fact of the matter is he went there any at that time and probably still today. If you go to any Latin American country in the airport, you're going to see uh, militarized police. Uh, we're starting to see it in our airports here, too, with, uh, you know, AK-47 or other assault weapons. When you go to Cuba, that's not the case. You go there, and it's very, uh, very peaceful, gentle, unmilitarized, unpoliced uh, place. You go there, and people are going to school, going to work. It is a society that is functioning normally. Um, So that's what he learned. And when he came back, uh, he had a, a law degree, and he worked both in Cuba after that and in the United States, helping to figure out how to do uh, trade with Cuba uh, and have other relationships with it. Uh, it was interesting. When I, I met him, I did it by chance. There was an event at the uh, Cuban interest section in Washington, D.C., And I happened to run into one of the diplomats, and they said, hey, we've got an event. Why don't you come tonight? And believe me, I sat in the embassy structure, in the embassy building um, in Washington, D.C., and thought I was in some kind of uh, alternate reality when he started his talk talking about who he was and how he changed. So um, I just wanted to share that because it, it reminds me of this period where we're told one thing, but the reality is very different. That's why people need to go to Cuba and see it, experience it for themselves. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Cheryl, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're having a nuclear update, and we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Kevin Camps, a radioactive waste watchdog at Beyond Nuclear. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Kevin, uh, the state of New York uh, recently released a short video that was titled Nuclear Preparedness PSA uh, uh, earlier this week. And uh, with the caption reading, quote, NYC emergency management shares important steps for New Yorkers to follow if a nuclear attack occurs. Now, uh, a new a nuclear attack did not occur, uh, uh, fortunately. And uh, but it features a, a narrator within the video saying, so there's been a nuclear attack. Don't ask me how or why. Just know that the big one has hit. 
okay, so what do we do now? And so, you know, it's pretty out of the blue. And uh, a lot of people were understandably confused about uh, uh, some of the timing. Uh, New York Mayor uh, Eric Adams has uh, actually defended this, saying that it was all about, quote, preparedness and taking necessary steps after what happened in Ukraine. Uh, He said in a news conference a little earlier this week, quote, no, I don't think it was alarmist. I'm a big believer in better safe than sorry. This was right after the attack tax in the Ukraine and OEM took a very proactive step to say, let's be prepared. I mean, I feel like there's a good bit uh, wrapped up in this, Kevin, but just sort of uh, curious your your top line thoughts about uh, uh, New York releasing this PSA. Well, I think one of the best responses has been from ICANN, which is the International Coalition for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017. They pointed out that uh, it's kind of hard to go into your house and shelter if it has been destroyed. I mean, they pointed out that uh, a modern hydrogen bomb exploding over New York City, just a single one, could cause houses out to a distance of more than 100 miles to either vaporize or collapse. Even that distance away, that would be the collapse from the shockwaves. So it's just, you know, um, there have been comparisons to the duck and cover drills of the 1950s, the, the, you know, now gone away civil defense authority in the United States, although the signs are rusting away on the sides of buildings in some places still. So it's kind of hard to prepare for a nuclear war. It's kind of hard to prepare for survival after a nuclear war, depending on how close you are to the epicenter of the blast. And I guess that's, you know, that's a good thing that people are thinking about it because there are thousands of nuclear weapons, whether in the United States or Russia or others of the seven nuclear armed states in this world that are on high alert that could be fired within minutes. And uh, we live with this threat every day. We need to abolish these weapons. Yeah, I mean, I I do find the timing of this ad release being released pretty dubious, even though, you know, Eric Adams said, oh, it's not in response to anything. I, I really do feel like it's it's uh, an extension of this uh, ongoing uh, Russophobia that, that we've seen in this country that has people defending the U.S. and its proxy war with along with the EU and NATO, NATO in Ukraine against Russia. Again, you know, putting the United States in the position of, you know, watch out for uh, the Russia and their nuclear weapons without really critically looking at the fact that this, even this wouldn't be something that uh, Russia would more, would be more likely to do. More likely it would be done by the greatest imperialist power in the world, and that's the United States. Well, you know, I'm reminded of some of the history here. So, for example, there used to be these civil defense drills in New York City in the 1950s. And there were a group of people who really stood out because they refused to participate. And the drills would have people go down into these bomb shelters. Nobody ever told that's probably where you would die instantly if there were a nuclear attack down in those bomb shelters. But people like the Catholic worker of New York City would organize protests on the street level and get arrested. So that was Dorothy Day, the founder. But I think A.J. Musty, one of the biggest names in pacifism in U.S. history, also would take part in those protests. And I heard about similar protests. In fact, uh, my ex-wife is from Czechoslovakia, and when they held um, similar bomb drills in Czechoslovakia, 
she would not participate. And she talked her roommates at high school into joining her. So there are people worldwide who see through, you know, the survivability of nuclear war. It has to be prevented in the first place. Yeah, definitely. And switching gears a, a little bit, Kevin, uh, uh, in a couple of days, uh, we'll be marking the July 16th anniversary of uh, the Trinity test and uh, the Church Rock Uranium Mill Spill. And the Trinity tr- uh, test was actually the first ever nuclear weapons test in New Mexico that took place in 1945. And the Church Rock U- uh, Uranium Mill Spill was the largest radiological release in U.S. history back in 1979. And I was hoping you could help us understand the significance of these two events and why it's important that we commemorate them. Well, uh, the 1945 Trinity blast during the Manhattan Project was um, a test of the Nagasaki bomb, which then was actually used in Japan just a few weeks later on August 9th. And of course, there was the Hiroshima bomb on August 6th, but the Manhattan Project scientists were so confident that it would work that they didn't even test it before they dropped it on August 6th. But what happened in New Mexico at the so-called Trinity site in the Tularosa Basin was a massive dirty bomb, essentially. It was a huge contamination event that hurt a lot of people, and a lot of those people were Latinx downwind and downstream. Also, the Mescalero Apache are downwind, and uh, white ranchers. And uh, there was an infamous line from the Nevada test site about a decade later where the Atomic Energy Commission said, you know, it's okay to open this test site in Nevada because it's a low-use segment of the population downwind. It's cowboys and Indians and Mormons, so who cares, essentially, is what they said. And the same thinking applied to this Trinity blast in 1945 in New Mexico, unfortunately. So uh, a group called the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium is holding its 13th annual candlelight vigil And they're honoring those who didn't make it, who died from cancer and other diseases, and honoring the survivors who are still with us at this time, although suffering. And there's never been any compensation to these people in New Mexico. They're the first downwinders in world history, and they've never been federally recognized in the United States. Not a penny of compensation for medical care or anything like that has been um, directed their way. So they're still fighting for that amazing group of people. And ironically enough, the same date, July 16th, but in the year 1979, took place also in New Mexico, this time not southern New Mexico, but northwest New Mexico, up near the Pueblo Indian Reservations and the Navajo Indian lands. It was a uranium uh, mine and mill tailing spill into a river called the Puerco that Navajo Diné shepherds used to irrigate their flocks, but also for drinking water. It was a massive and perhaps the biggest radiological incident in U.S. history, but most people have never heard of it. And the Navajo, who still live there, the Red Water Pond Road Community Association, has been commemorating this year after year. This will be the 43rd commemoration, and they're still living out there. They're still living with the contamination that resulted from that massive release of radioactive and toxic water and sludge into their sole source of drinking water. Yeah. And, you know, there are commemorations for this horrific event that are happening. How can people participate in them, even if they're not able to attend in person? Yeah, uh, folks could go to our website, which is beyondnuclear.org, and I'll put up there links to additional information. 
So there are commemorations for these events on July 16th. Of course, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki commemorations are coming right up in August. And we'll try to just have a running tally of how people can plug in, documentaries they can watch, interviews, things like that. And I wanted to just mention a commemoration real quick that gets us back to New York City. On June 12th of 1982 was the biggest peace protest in U.S. history in Central Park, New York. It was calling for an end to the nuclear arms race and abolition of nuclear weapons. And I just wanted to point that out because that history of just resisting the nuclear arms race in New York City went way back to the beginning. And this protest was over a million people, some say two and a half million people. So because it was the 40th anniversary, there were some pretty moving um, commemorations of that taking place and how powerful it was and how effective it was ultimately. And uh, so there's good people all over the world fighting for for nuclear abolition. Yeah. And, you know, you made me think of something a moment ago when you were talking about, you know, who was really impacted by uh, uh, these tests and these, you know, releases that that happen, I think, more often than we realize, Kevin. And that's the uh, racial and class implications of how these things play out. And on the one hand, I feel like that's really almost always the case with any kind of um, environmental issue. We're talking about climate change, uh, flooding, uh, uh, global warming, all of these different issues that we seem to see these same dynamics, but it seems like we don't really hear much about that in regards to the nuclear issue. I mean, honestly, I feel like we we don't hear much about uh, uh, nuclear in general in this country, at least in terms of, you know, the news and uh, uh, to the extent that we do, it's sort of this uh, uh, uncritical support of, you know, this weapons and and this energy. But I mean, it seems to me that uh, it's often the case that uh, uh, these issues overwhelmingly impact impact of poor working and oppressed people and people of color. And certainly in the Southwest, in that part of a country, we often see it impacting indigenous folks and things like that. And so it just seems like that is uh, almost always a factor uh, when we discuss this. And so in truth, I mean, when we talk about uh, 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 the nuclear issue, it really is a a racial justice issue and uh, an issue of class exploitation. Yeah, very much so. I mean, to bring it right up to the present, just yesterday, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission published its final environmental impact statement on a consolidated interim storage facility for high-level radioactive waste in southeastern New Mexico. And New Mexico is a majority-minority state. A majority of the population is Latinx and indigenous. And so this facility would be enough storage space for nearly twice the amount of high-level radioactive waste that exists in the United States. So that starts to beg some questions. And of course, the NRC found nothing wrong here, full speed ahead. They're probably going to license this dump next January. So the environmental injustice of the nuclear power enterprise, the nuclear weapons enterprise, I mean, as we've already talked about with Trinity, with Church Rock, but the list goes on and on out in New Mexico, the nuclear abuses that have been inflicted on that state. So this brings it right up to the present. They're still trying to get away with this, and they've got opposition around the country. So that's the good news. People are fighting back in New Mexico and across the country. Yeah, in our last couple of minutes, uh, Kevin, I wanted to touch on 
this issue that uh, Tokyo District Court ordered four former executives of uh, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, or TEPCO, to pay uh, the equivalent of $97 billion U.S. dollars to the company for the damage that was caused by uh, the Fukushima uh, disaster back in March 11th of 2011. And it's believed to be the largest award ever by a court for a civil suit. And reportedly, uh, this was filed by 48 TEPCO shareholders against the five former TEPCO officials, including the 82-year-old former chairman, uh, Sunahisa Katsumata. And, you know, this is obviously something that had devastating impacts for uh, a lot of people. And I'm just wondering what you think uh, of the significance of this could be. Well, I think the good news is that it's a recognition that somebody did something wrong here and actually named some names. And it's very true that those officials certainly were implicated in this global catastrophe, but lots of other people were too, including, uh, you know, Abe, who was just assassinated, um, a very pro-nuclear Japanese politician from a very pro-nuclear Japanese political party that's ruled the country for almost its entire post-World War II existence. That's the good news that, you know, some accountability has finally been um, ruled by a court. The bad news is that the payment, in my understanding, would go to those shareholders or back to Tokyo Electric to share with its shareholders, which is kind of like capitalist theater of the absurd. I mean, the entire nation of Japan has suffered. Some people, especially so the nuclear evacuees from the Fukushima Daiichi neck of the woods, one figure I saw for damages to be expected over a certain amount of time into the future was $600 billion. And I think that figure, you know, if truth be told and full cost accounting applied, is is going to just keep increasing over time. So, you know, it's hard to put a dollar figure on a catastrophe like this. And certainly, you know, um, even the thousands of people who the Japanese government has acknowledged have died indirectly, they say, from the Fukushima Daiichi catastrophe, many of them suicides um, for having lost their home of many generations and their family. Um, There's no way you can compensate for that. Yeah. Capitalist theater of the absurd. Couldn't have said it better myself. Well, we thank you so much, Kevin, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch Steady C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, July 14th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at by any means 
means necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, to kick things off today, Jackie, I wanted to talk about this really, uh, uh, frankly, infuriating story uh, that's coming out of St. Louis, Missouri, about a lawsuit coming from uh, the family of a man who went to a hospital back in April 2021 as a late stage uh, kidney patient, but ended up getting tackled and beaten uh, by the uh, security guards. And I was hoping you could tell us uh, what what was happening here and just some of the details and just uh, how you're sort of seeing the situation unfold. Yeah, this situation, I think, is is in a classic example of, uh, you know, the, the nexus between capitalism and police brutality and, and, you know, a whole lot of racism thrown in there as well. Huey Robinson was 52 at the time. He was a patient at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis. And uh, they say that he was dying of stage four renal failure. But I, I'll, I'll get to that, why that doesn't really make sense in a minute. But last year, he spent four days in the hospital because he was preparing for a possible kidney transplant that never came. And we'll have to talk about that in a minute, too. So he was released um, in a weakened and disoriented state because he had been drugged, you know, preparing for this transplant. He plant transplant. He was sent home. And according to uh, the lawsuit uh, documents, you know, he left the hospital, realized he didn't have his wallet when he was at home. Called the hospital, said he had forgotten his wallet. They told him to go to uh, a specific garage to pick it up, different from the garage where he would normally park when he would go get his uh, regular treatment. So he went to retrieve his wallet, but then he forgot where he left. He left his car because it wasn't the garage that he normally parked in. He was still kind of under the effects of some of the, the the medication that was wearing off. And surveillance footage from the hospital showed that armed guards, armed guards at a hospital, charged Robinson, forced him to the ground, despite the fact that he had his parking ticket and he still had the patient, patient uh, bracelet on his wrist. They accused him of looking to steal cars. That's the excuse they used for tackling him and beating him. Uh, since last year, unfortunately, uh, Mr. Robinson died of his illness. And it's his daughter, Chelsea Robinson, who's now representing him in the lawsuit against Barnes Jewish Hospital. 
and the lawsuit is accusing uh, uh, the hospital of uh, assault, battery, and false imprisonment of uh, Huey Robinson. But but going back, Sean, to the whole dying of stage four renal failure thing, you, mm-hmm. you're that that that's actually a mis- mischaracterization. Stage four is certainly critical, and it's an indication that your kidney function is far below what it should be. But you're not really dying of renal failure. You're not even usually a candidate for uh, dialysis on stage four. People, many people live in stage four kidney uh, disease for decades and can live kind of, you know, as long as they monitor their diet and whatnot. Um, but it is it is when you go into stage five uh, kidney disease, which they consider renal failure when your kidneys stop functioning. So Mr. Robinson was in the hospital because he was on a transplant uh, transplant list. He was on a list of people who were eligible to receive a kidney transplant. That is the only reason he would have been in the hospital. It's not like you can walk up to uh, walk up uh, up to any hospital and say, "Hey, do you guys do kidney transplants?" Oh, I need a transplant. What a coincidence. What a coincidence. You just happen to need one, though. Yeah, I think I need one. That's that's not how it works. Um, you you have to register with uh, an organization. I'm not going to mess the name up because I'm not sure what it is right now. Um, to be put on the list of potential uh, uh, kidney or any organ recipient. And when an organ becomes available... The next, however many people, three, five people on the list are contacted and they're told an organ has become available, get to the hospital within the next hour. And then, you know, the organ is airlifted to whatever hospital. That's that's how that works. Right. And I only know this because, you know, full disclosure, I am a kidney patient. I I have chronic kidney disease, kidney disease. I am I am in stage five. Um, So, yeah. So so I have to know these things. Right. Mm -hmm. So so this story really struck me because of what happened to Mr. Robin Robinson at that point, like he goes to the hospital because he got the call. A kidney is available. Let's prep you for surgery, for this transplant. He goes to the hospital to get prepped for the transplant, and the transplant doesn't happen. Why is that? The article doesn't go into that. The media is not reporting that. I'll tell you why. Because there are panels of doctors, specialists, transplant specialists, at hospitals uh, that perform transplants or are part of the network who literally decide who on the list of recipients is the most, I, I hate to say deserving, Sean, but there really is no other word for it. They, they sit there and decide who deserves to get this kidney more. Wow. They decide based on, and I know people are probably thinking, oh, you know, if the person is healthy, you know, right? But and and they do take factors like is the patient obese uh, uh, under consideration? Do they have hyper uh, hypertension uh, uh, that's uncontrolled? If they have high high cholesterol, but they also look at sometimes people people's criminal records. Oh wow! They also Wait, to see if they should qualify for an organ. Yes. Wow. Yes. They also sometimes they're not supposed to do that. 
They're supposed to make these decisions entirely for medical, but but come on now. This is the United States of America, and, and health care is for profit. So these people, most of the people on these panels are mostly white men. They are deciding who is more deserving to continue to live. And I, did, I could be wrong. I would love to be proven wrong about this being the reason Mr. Robinson did not actually get the kidney that he was being prepped to receive. But even if somebody tells me it's something else, I'm not going to believe it because because it, it just it makes no sense that someone who is ready to receive a kidney is on the list to receive a kidney next on the list to receive a kidney is prepared surgically to have the the surgery to receive the kidney and then all of a sudden it it, it doesn't happen that that no that that is also another indication of uh uh the racialized capitalism the way it manifests itself in healthcare yeah, definitely. And I agree that um, this situation sits pretty squarely in the nexus between uh, capitalist health care and racist police terror. And according to some reports that I've seen, uh, these security guards, even after realizing that Mr. Robinson did, in fact, belong there, still uh, taunted him and threatened him to the point where um, he would try to get his lawyer to come with him to that hospital because that's where he would go to get treatment. And he knew that he would have to continually uh, uh, come back and felt like he needed some kind of protection. I mean, this is just just unconscionable, I think, in a number of ways. And I think it shows a couple of things. I mean, number one, we already know about the ongoing reality of racist police terror in this country. We've seen the situation with Jalen Walker and Patrick Leoya and so many others who uh, have been killed, excuse me, that we know about, uh, excuse me, since uh, George Floyd and the ensuing rebellions around that. But it just seems especially cruel, not that it isn't already cruel in and of itself, you know, to beat someone up for just for looking for their car. But it's especially cruel in the sense that this is a man who thought that he was about to get a second chance at life. That's what an Oregon means. And I mean, you know, and this whole process that you're breaking down is already just insane on so many levels with the panels and the looking at the the criminal history and all these sorts of things, not to mention the fact that, you know, according to what you're describing, Jackie, that, uh, you know, you're supposed to just drop what you're doing at a moment's notice. I mean, you know, hopefully you don't like work or anything, you know, or do anything with your time. I mean, it's just, it's just uh, uh, an incredible sort of thing that people have to go through this to get an organ, to get something that they fundamentally need uh, uh, to live. And so Mr. Robinson was completely messed over by this process. And, you know, I, I just can't imagine what it's like to show up to a hospital and they're basically like, you know, oops, don't have a kidney for you. Like, I, I just I can't even imagine how that must have felt for him and, and for his family. And so I can't think of a bigger insult to injury than be trying to leave, because to my understanding, he had already left. And I think, according to what I read, he had left his wallet or something and had come back to get it. And that's when all of this unfolded. But if they weren't jerking him around to begin with, 
he would have never been there for that to happen. But yet and still, those uh, uh, security guards and those same people all still work there. And so, you know, perhaps someone else would have been uh, the target of their aggression, which wouldn't have been good either. But but either way, I mean, you're talking about someone, Mr. Robinson, who has who's facing just systemic violence on just a number of different levels. And I can't help but think about what if we lived under a system that not only had a, a, a universal healthcare system where there wasn't all this bureaucracy and, and rigmarole and who shot John over these things that people need, uh, uh, like an organ, but also uh, uh, the fact of, you know, the institution of policing, which we know emerges out of slavery itself and what a real uh, public safety situation would look like under an economic system and really an entire system and a culture and a society that is geared around uh, taking care of people's needs instead of maximizing profits. Because, I mean, as we know, with, uh, uh, you know, uh, hospitals and, uh, the you know, big pharma and things like that. Our health, or perhaps I should say our sickness, is a a very lucrative business. And that's why some people say in the United States that we don't even have health care. We have sick care. You know what I mean? You know, uh, there's no investment in, you know, uh, preventative health care and things like that. All these things are boiled down like so many others to, to individual choices and things like that. When in reality, just like every other uh, uh, imperative need that human beings have, whether it's food, whether it's housing, whether it's whatever, if you cannot afford it, then you don't have a right to it because these things are not uh, uh, ensconced as a part of, you know, say the constitution, there's no constitutional right to housing or health care or anything like that. And as such, they're subject to the interest of capital. And in a country that uh, is not only the wealthiest on earth, but, you know, that claims to be at the very height of, you know, human rights and things like that, the greatest defenders of humanity and all these sorts of things. But they don't even do that right here inside the U.S. And they certainly are not doing that from uh, uh, the outside. You know what I mean? And so it, it just it just shows, I think this shows in a very stark way about how the contradictions of this capitalist system really just waylay and batter and bludgeon flesh and blood human beings all the time, every moment of every day. And there are people who live their daily lives at these different cross sections of, you know, exploitation and oppression in terms of how this system operates. And these are people's lives. And so this is why we say that this system is a death cult because it does everything. It, it, it wrings you dry. It squeezes you dry. Every drop of blood, every drop of humanity that you have and only wants to keep you around just long enough and to give you enough just to exploit you before just shoving you off into the grave. You know what I mean? That's the fundamental inhumanity of this capitalist system that unfortunately uh, uh, Mr. Robinson was subject to in in such uh, uh, a serious way. And uh, even looking at the policing issues and looking at how, you know, the entire, the entire political mainstream, the Democrats and Republicans, these two ruling class formations that run our lives, right? About how both of them, both of these ruling class elements are hellbent, bell-hound and determined, and literally sworn 
to protect these institutions like the police that are literally designed to abuse, batter, suppress, and kill the masses of uh, poor, working, and oppressed people. So those security guards were acting in their role under the capitalist state to protect property, to protect the private property of the hospital. Now, if this hospital, this was a people's institution, if this was an institution that was designed around, you know, actually caring for people and healing people, regardless of what insurance you got or what list you're on and all these sorts of things, when we look at uh, uh, the hospital system in the United States, then I have to think that this whole entire situation would look uh, uh, entirely different. And I mean, the idea that we have panels of people that decide who gets to live and who gets to die. But you know what? Is it really that much different than the Supreme Court? I mean, the Supreme, I mean, this is nine unelected, handpicked people, people who are handpicked by the leadership of different wings of the ruling class to rule over all of us and who have consistently throughout history ruled against the interest of those people. Whenever they acted in favor of the people, it was always because there was a movement and always because there was outside pressure, right? But you've got these nine unelected warriors of capital that have just this incredible amount of power, literally life and death, as we see. Like if you look at the situation of abortion rights, that's a life or death issue. You know what I mean? So these people who nobody elected hold the power over life and death, just like those panels and just like the police. And so it, it, it I think, reveals a lot about the relationship of forces and the reality of power under the capitalist system, power and who has it. The power, just like the wealth in this country, is concentrated in the hands of a few. And if what you and I seek is a situation where we want that power and we want those resources to be placed squarely in the hands of the people, those of us who make this country run, well, then we have to understand that there's no reforming this system. There has to be a completely different and separate system, society, and culture in the United States that I think could only be brought about as the result of a socialist reconstruction of the United States of America. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. 
Me and Jackie Lukeman continue to chop it up here on the show. Shout out to the By Any Means Necessary chat. Uh, Manny Niles says, we can't ignore disability because so many of our people are sick, injured, chronically ill, etc. You know, that's definitely true. And, you know, I think that this is an aspect of white supremacy and capitalism that I think a lot of folks still don't necessarily grasp, Jackie, in um, the fact that our experience of oppression in this country and under this system, it's not just about an immediate sort of interpersonal experience. We're talking about the holistic conditions of entire people being impacted by these systems and the experiences like genocide, like slavery and things like this. So when we look at, you know, diseases and disorders that proliferate amongst oppressed people, you know, uh, diabetes, hypertension, uh, alcoholism, different kinds of uh, cancers, substance abuse, all these uh, sorts of things that tend to crop up. Now, certainly, oppressed people aren't the only ones that suffer from this, but there is a direct connection to uh, the health conditions of oppressed people because of the contradictions of this system. And so it's like if you go into, uh, say, Southeast D.C., right, like so many uh, poor and working black neighborhoods in the United States, I mean, the, the, the grocery stores that do exist, not that there's nearly enough, when you look at, excuse me, the quality of food and the sorts of things uh, uh, that are in there, the products, I think the, uh, the, the corner stores might actually be some of the worst offenders of this in terms of having uh, these sodas and these chips that are, you know, just chocked full of uh, artificial sweeteners and uh, uh, preservatives and salt and, and all these sorts of things. And see, because of that, now, if you go, say, you know, into one of the more uh, affluent areas of D.C., you don't see these sorts of things. You don't see all these, you know, uh, these crazy sweet sodas that nobody's ever heard of and all these sorts uh, 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 of things. But see, this is where that personal responsibility myth comes in, because people think that because a person walks into that store and plunks down their money to buy this stuff, then it's their fault. But when you're in a situation where you don't have really access to quality uh, a healthy food when the other stuff is more accessible and cheaper, mind you, more right. affordable, perhaps more to the point than um, all these other things because, you know, organic food costs more, right? Uh, uh, if you're looking for something that's uh, gluten-free or all these sorts of things, right? Uh, these things actually cost money. So it's like you really have to pay just for a decent quality food. But it's not an issue of too many individuals eating the wrong stuff. And we see this come down in legislation too. Like the, these cities that will do these, um, oh, what do they call it? When they like tax junk food oh, yeah, the, higher the, than the, the other soda stuff. Soda tax and the yeah. whatnot, yeah. Yeah. And so you'll increase tax on a product, right? But won't do anything to actually address people's access to not only quality food, but here again, healthcare, right? Because you need that. 
All of these things are connected. When we talk about health and education and public safety and uh, 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 the, uh, the, the labor situation, all these sorts of things, it's all connected and they all have all these dynamics of gender and class and race all flowing together and intertwined and really developing a situation of super exploitation, right? That consigns so many of us to sickness, to suffering, and to premature death. I was actually talking to someone the other day who used to to to, to live in Southeast, and they were saying that if you notice, you see a lot of um uh you know people uh, a lot of people uh, who are amputees and things like this, and they have those motorized wheelchairs and things like that. Why does it seem like black communities have more of that than anyone else? What are we being told in these facilities? What is the level of our community's health care that they almost become like these uh, uh, slaughterhouses, some of them? Again, to the extent that they even exist. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then I'm thinking, and I'm rambling now, but I'm thinking about the, um, the, the infant mortality rate and how black women in D.C. are just ravaged by that and how there aren't even facilities often in uh, uh, black communities for, you know, prenatal care. And so, so, Jackie, it's just at every level we see how the institutions under capitalism uh, are a part of what rob us of our humanity and increase our suffering uh, while we're here. Uh, and as such, like I said, towards the end of our last segment, it will require something entirely different if we want to see a real change. And I mean, that that wasn't even like a ramble because that's just the truth. That's just, you know, when when you and and, and again, getting personal, I did not know that I had chronic kidney disease because every doctor I went to never told me that there was anything wrong with my kidneys until I went to get a stress test, regular stress test for my heart. And the cardiologist, just happened to be a black woman, said, oh, yeah, all your other levels are pretty good. Yeah, you need to get your blood pressure in a little bit more control, lose a little weight. But we really need to be talking to you and getting you prepared for a, tr- a kidney transplant. And I'm like, what? Excuse me? This was just last year. So all of this is connected because here we are, you know, and and I'm fortunate. I'm one of the fortunate folks who can afford a few vegan things or organic this or whatever. I don't have to shop at the grocery store, but all of the folks in my neighborhood and and in the barrios across this country who are living on minimum wage, just barely making it by, all they can afford to feed themselves and their children are the highly processed, very bad for you, full of sodium and all kinds of chemicals that no one can pronounce, Mm -hmm. foods that are not only cheap, but they last a long time. Right. That's the other thing with organic food that people don't get. It doesn't last very long. I mean, I have a garden. I have to eat it when I when I pluck my collards. They need to be eaten within three days or else there. You you understand? So when you have that might be okay for you. But when you have kids, you can't, you know, be buying food that doesn't last for longer than a week. And, and if you are receiving any kind of assistance because you're not making enough money in the first place, so I hope you're receiving assistance, you you have to buy the food that is going to uh, 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 last the longest and provide the most food for your family. That's 
always the worst food that is being sold in the stores. The pre-packaged, highly processed, full of sodium, full of sugar and all kinds of chemical stuff. Then there's that. Then there's the stress Mm. of living in this capitalist system. There's the stress of the grind every day trying to figure out, are you going to be able to make your rent or afford medication? Being sick, knowing you don't feel well, but you either don't have health insurance or you have some health insurance that's not great, but you can't go to the doctor because you can't take off work, can't afford to, do, to miss a day of work, or you don't have the money to pay for the doctor, doctor visit and the copay. So then so then there's that part of it. And then if you do go to the doctor, then you get doctors who they look at you. And if you are overweight, the first thing they tell you, Sean, is you need to lose weight. That's your problem. Right. That's your problem. You eat too much. You need blah, blah, blah. That's that's for years. So you have all of these converging societal systemic issues on your back every day. Then you've got, you know, the media saying how it's your fault that you're fat and you're out of shape and you're unhealthy. And what what do you do? You, you, you're depressed. There's no help for you for that. So so what do you do? You die. That's what you do. That's what we do. So this is why we we see, you know, when we finally get diagnosed with some chronic illness, it is no longer chronic. It is terminal by the time we get diagnosed with it because of because of all of those factors for many, many of us. We've gone so long of nobody paying any attention to the issues that really plague us that by the time we get diagnosed with something, it's too late and it kills us. And for those of us who are lucky, lucky, and we finally get diagnosed with a chronic illness, the issue is the medical professionals really don't like black people. I mean, that's just that really don't like black and brown people and are really not interested in digging into telling folks, you know, how to advocate for their own health. So then you find out too late that, oh, my God, your one of your organs is failing and you're going to need a transplant. And then you're put in a situation like Mr. Robinson was put in. Right. Where you might get a transplant, maybe. Yeah. depending on this panel of five usually white doctors, if they think you're worthy or not. So so this whole thing is a death trap. Can't nobody tell me that this can be fixed with any kind of reform. It is socialism or barbarism. It really is for us, Sean. Yeah, definitely. And shout out to uh, uh, Lelis B in uh, the Binomese Necessary chat that said, not only that, there is a lot of mental illness. You see a lot of that here and they are young people. Yeah, I think that's true. And that connects to what you were saying, Jackie, about uh, like the stress and the anxiety and and the depression. There is a, a whole uh, mental health aspect to uh, uh, oppressed communities that are part and parcel of their conditions as well, which, excuse me, is also something that uh, gets glossed over. And particularly when you talk about young people, because when you talk about like, you know, young black people and their struggles, I mean, this is a group that is, is seen as dangerous, that is seen as criminal, frankly, uh, that is seen as, you know, uh, 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 angry for no reason. You know, uh, they've been called uh, uh, super predators by uh, uh, different people in this country, you know, like Hillary Clinton and, and folks like that. And so it, it what we're really talking about is is social murder. 
That, that like th- this collective uh, experience that we're discussing, it, it's really social murder because we're talking about something that just uh, that just savages whole communities of people at every level, mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, you know, social, economic, political, all of those things. And it's all because of these different contradictions of the uh, 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 capitalist system that continue to rage on. And so this is what I mean when I talk about how this system tries to rob us of our humanity. You know what I mean? Because it literally attacks everything that makes us human and then punishes us for having uh, uh, all of these different problems. You know what I mean? And so it's like if we look at D.C., to me, there's a direct connection between the the lack of resources in this city's uh, black communities and this uh, rapacious rate of displacement and gentrification and things like that, because why would you invest in grocery stores and hospitals and all that for a community that you just want to push out anyway? Right. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. You want to you want to push them out and put up these uh, luxury units and all those sorts of things and charge these uh, uh, sky high rents so that these more affluent people can come in and, you know, line your pockets with these plastic looking apartments and, and things like that. So it's it's the logic of it then says that there's no point in uh, investing in that development. The benefit of what they call development is not for the longtime residents. It's not for the people who are subject to be displaced. It's for the new elements that are are set to move in. And so, Jackie, when you talk about generations and generations of people who are just having their needs uh, uh, brushed off and then say, like when people complain about community violence and and things like that, and then use that to justify more money for the police and things like this. But this is a part of the whole issue in terms of the real uh, systemic and social aspect of a lot of these problems is never acknowledged by those that are in power, whether it's Muriel Bowser or whoever uh, uh, the, the, is in the leadership of these different cities and towns across the country where we continue to see this. What we get instead, to me, feels like different versions of, uh, uh, of black pathology, where it's basically implied that, you know, uh, black folks or poor working oppressed people are genetically predisposed to crime and violence and, and destruction and murder and all those sorts of things. And there's, and, and here again, we see a return to that uh, 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 personal responsibility thing and about, you know, uh, uh, people's individual choices as if, you know, people's choices aren't circumscribed by their conditions. Like this whole conversation around choice that people have when it comes to things like this, to me, is often completely dishonest. And, you know, I've I've made fun of this on the show before. The idea that, you know, we all have the same 24 hours, (laughs) you know, uh, uh, Bill, Bill Gates and a houseless person, you know, living in an encampment in, in MacPherson Square, not that far from Sputnik, these two people have the same 24 hours to make the same. That's that's complete garbage. Garbage. Your choices and the things you have available to you are defined by your class position. And the fact that there are individuals who hold more worth than they could spend in one lifetime does not contradict that. You know what I mean? Because that's a part of the trick. Right. And that's why 
really those um those wealthy elites this this capitalist class this is this is a part of uh of the propaganda right it's like well you know i could do it you know i you know built a computer out of safety pins in my garage or whatever the uh, uh of the story is so why can't you do it and it's just it you know garage right. right there in your garage with safety pins and other things that your parents whose house the garage is attached to. Come yeah. on now. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like people, like all of these so-called self-made stories, what's always left out is like, you know, their parents or somebody having some, you know, crazy kind of money that ultimately helped them. And it all promotes this nonsense, uh, a self-made man or self-made millionaire or billionaire deal. And as we often say uh, uh, here on the show, there is no such thing as a self-made billionaire. You only get that much money through the ruthless exploitation of other people. That's how uh, uh, Bill Gates got uh, his money. That's how Jeff Bezos got his money. That's how Warren Buffett got his. That's how Jay-Z and Oprah got their money. You know what I mean? And so we, we can't fall into this trap of uh, uh, thinking that, well, you know, a billionaire is okay as long as they're black or as long as they're not white or, you know, as long as they're, you know, quote unquote, giving back like Jay-Z and that absurd uh, <laughs> cryptocurrency class uh, at the Marcy Projects, which, you know, is still is, is just a big trip. We can't fall into that trap of this celebrity worship and this uh, uh, individual, you know, exceptionalist way of looking at things. No, the only thing that's going to change this is a more a collectively driven society that directly and explicitly uh, gives people access to all the things that they need, regardless of their ability to pay. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. And we have a couple of callers on the line here. First up is Terry. Tell us what's on your mind. Uh, good afternoon. Can you hear me well? Yeah, you're just fine. Okay, thank you. And I thank both of you all for what you do um, every day. I um, The contribution I'd like to make to this discussion is that I look at things differently. I look at our condition as um, neglect of our condition based on our position. And I'm saying that to say when I think of the enslavement for 400 years, you might as well say, and then, you know, all of a sudden the shackles are off. And all of a sudden, you know, it's this need to say you need to get equal eventually and cost about another uh, 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 maybe 100 years. But I liken it to someone having um, a Lamborghini and, you know, you're supposed to go around the racetrack 500 times and they've already gone around 450 times. And now we're getting out of slavery, enslavement. 
and we're in we're in a car. It doesn't have a steering wheel. Uh, the air is busted out of two of the tires. The other one is on a rim. And someone is saying, "Now you need to hurry up and catch up and 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 putting you know that person down for you know why you can't get 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 your laps around." Well, for one thing, it's a it's a gross disrespect to the person who's riding in the banged up, beat up car to even request that they make a, an equal uh, relationship with this person who's been uh, free for for, 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 all, for whatever that period of time. And so I think that this is why there is a need for a quote-unquote black agenda. We're not on the same page. Number two, we're not the same. Number three, we have a lot of inner work to do. I mean, and also on top of that, we have to figure out when is the slave going to stop being a slave in terms of the self-hatred that was taught? When, who's going to come here and un, un, where we have to unlearn so many things? We have been given so many things that we have just picked up vicariously that have not been examined. So we don't have we have not taken the time to say, wait a minute, I do not need this, this and this. I need this, this, and this. I, you know, we don't need to have, uh, you know, all of this extra, uh, super over the top. How about let's go back and get some of this land? How about being able to grow our own food? That will take take care of what uh, the system was saying about her kidney and the health and all of that. I mean, but we don't have the right agenda. And let's hurry up and catch up. And meanwhile, uh, thousands of people are running and, and falling down on the tracks, you know, emptying out their paychecks every week, trying to have the appearance of caught up. And, you know, it's just a sign of a mental problem. And I will close by saying that I've heard often that insanity is doing the same thing in the same way, expecting a different outcome. And at what point do we really just say, you know what, we're on it. This is insane. If, if, if a cop is constantly killing um, black people and that story disappears because some other situation showed up, I can't help. My, my mind can't work with it. I'm looking at agenda and I'm like, well, wow, you know, when, when, when Buffalo happened, we couldn't even hear the Buffalo story because something else happened. And then Buffalo got moved completely off of the table. You know, when the one man in uh, just a couple of weeks ago got shot 60-something times, that got moved off completely off of the table because the agendas are two different agendas. We cannot sustain the attention on the black problems in the black agenda. And that's all I have to say. And I thank you for letting me say it. Thank you, Terry. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. I mean, yeah, I mean, the truth is there is no catching up under this system. Right. It will never happen precisely because of the point you made about, you know, at least in, in the case of black folks, we're talking about uh, being like several centuries uh, 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 behind in that way. And of course, not of our own fault, but because of the condition that we've been put in in this uh, uh, country. And you know what? Honestly, this really just, <laughs> I think, raises for me why the defeat of Reconstruction was such a devastating, mm -hmm. really, I would call it a historical defeat for black people in this country because that was the last time that there was any kind of genuine supported effort for black folks to uh, uh, really be ensconced in the institutional life of this country and in the democratic life. And if you look at some of the things that they were actually uh, uh, proposing, 
that we would consider progressive even today. I think we see why that was uh, uh, why it was necessary for there to be that betrayal and for these uh, terroristic elements to be able to run roughshod. And that really in that period after slavery, why there was just so clearly a move to consign black people to a condition that was like slavery in every way but name. That's how we get sharecropping. This is how we get the black codes and the vagrancy laws and and what became the mass incarceration state. Say what? Convict leasing. Convict leasing. Mm -hmm. All these sorts of things, right? Um, It's it's all about sort of a a reinstituting, basically sort of firming up the social position of black people in this country, quote unquote, keeping us in our place, right? in a way that's as close to slavery as it could be without a name. That is not a coincidence. When we see like the 13th Amendment and how slavery is illegal, except if you're convicted of a crime and all these sorts of things, you know what I mean? And so our entire political trajectory from the end of slavery up until this point, I think has uh, uh, been colored by that, which is not only why we need to study black reconstruction in the United States, but we need to be organizing for socialist reconstruction of this country. And in terms of the uh, self-hatred that you were talking about, I mean, look, you know, Frantz Fanon tells us that the oppressed always believe the worst about themselves, right? Anywhere you go on this world where you find a colonized people or people who are enslaved or have really in any way been exploited or oppressed, you'll find a lot of these uh, uh, similar issues that black folks deal with. And so in my mind, and that's why really throughout history, we've seen different people and different organizations that have spoken directly to that. You know, I'm thinking of people like uh, Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, Mm -hmm. who said that we have every right to believe that God is a Negro or uh, Marcus Garvey and his United Negro Improvement Association, the Nation of Islam or, you know, uh, the whole new African revolutionary movement. I mean, for for literally for uh, uh, centuries, we've been seeing these kinds of efforts, but we haven't they haven't just been uh, academic or intellectual exercises. They've been a part of movements and organizations. And so the best corrective to the self-hatred and what, because we're really talking about the mental and emotional ravages of centuries of slavery and white supremacy under this capitalist system, right? And the very best way to begin to undo that is through this struggle Mm -hmm. to destroy this system that had us in chains. Uh, But we have another caller on the line here, Kier. Tell us what's on your mind. Hello, good afternoon. I just wanted to kind of echo what y'all were um, talking about with the healthcare systems and things. When y'all were speaking of that, I was kind of thinking of my conversations with people I've had, and they always question, like, um, why do we have to wait three hours to go to the emergency room, or how come there's never enough houses? And something I always point out is, like, housing and the hospital system and everything, they're not they're not there to actually care for us. They're just there to make a profit. So, like, even before covid um, hospitals, I feel like we're always short-staffed and always had um, like one doctor trying to see 10,000 patients in a row. So you have people waiting um, four or five hours to see something. And then I'm always thinking, well, why can't we have multiple doctors in the building? And that, and then I eventually came to the conclusion myself that, you know, they have to protect their bottom line and keep their profits high. And then something also that I find funny when I 
talk about those things is that I'll talk about certain changes in the system, but I'll never mention the word socialism. And then people are always for it and they like agree and they want it. And then, you know, sometimes I'll bite the bullet and take the dive and say, well, yeah, it can't happen under this system. We have to go to a socialist system. And then you kind of see like their face change and then you kind of realize how deep the propaganda goes. And I'm like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that um, so far yet to pull you over. But those are just some of my experience that I have. And I find that kind of interesting. And then another thing kind of off the topic is that sometimes people don't like it when you, I want to know y'all's opinions and experience on this, but like when you point out something in the past, like for example, the history of the lawns, um, thank you, Jackie, for putting me onto that, like the history of the lawn and how it's like a colonial thing and something with white supremacy and things of the sort. And then some people are like, they don't want to hear all that because that's in the past and you know, you're a woke person always trying to put things down. But sometimes I think that, you know, you kind of have to be that person to bring the light to people. And then sometimes I do feel like a party killer or a party pooper when I'm like, and should we actually be doing this? Because it's rooted in anti-indigenousness or anti-blackness. But I don't know. Sometimes I feel like you have to be that person. I struggle with it. But I know I said a lot, but I just want to know y'all's thoughts on anything I said. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you, Kia. Really appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. I want to say two quick things and kick to my uh, co-host Jackie Lukman. Um, number one, uh, you know, I, I would encourage you. Got to understand that uh, you know, uh, anti-communism, anti-socialism in the United States is an unofficial religion. It's deep and abiding, and it it impacts people's consciousness in a way that they don't even understand. But we are in a time where that stigma has lifted somewhat. So I would encourage you, you know, not to be afraid to say the word socialism and beyond saying it, being able to rightly define just what that means for people and that it's not just a slate of progressive policies, but it's actually a complete overturning of uh, this system as we know it. And I mean, a part of that, uh, a lot of that actually, I think could come from political uh, uh, education, which I think comes uh, to uh, the other point that you were making. Because the fact of the matter is, I mean, as John Henry Clark would tell us, history is a current event. So, you know, uh, we can't just say, oh, well, that happened so long ago. OK, well, I mean, history, uh, uh, slavery was what, a couple centuries ago uh, when it ended. Uh, but it's clearly, as we just laid out, still affecting us in the 21st century in so many ways. All of the not only in terms of us uh, as black people, but all the banks and institutions and universities that were uh, bought and paid for uh, by uh, the money wrought from slavery still exist and all these sorts of things. And so you see that there's no escaping the reality of things. And I think, you know, in that moment, I would just encourage you to try to make the connection in terms of whatever it is you're touching in the past and how it looks today and is still impacting us. Because I think that's what tends to really connect with people is when you can make it clear or why they should care or how this thing is still having an impact. But Jackie Lukman, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I definitely am the party pooper in my family, um, Kier. So don't feel bad because, I mean, I, I do. I just, I go there. I go so I go socialism every time. People in my family were having a gathering. Folks are complaining about, oh my God, why does it have to take so long for, you know, like you said, to see a doctor and why not, you know, I went to the hospital and all I needed was X, Y, Z and I got this bill that's for thousand dollars and why is this? And, you know, they say these things and then they know who I am and then they take a breath because they're like, oh man, 
I just I started her up and then they just look at me and they just let me go. I am that person. I used to be I used to be very nervous about saying the word socialism around folks, you know, my friends and family, but I'm not anymore because I think it is apparent to those who know that there's something wrong with this system, that there is something wrong with this system. And I think enough people, enough of those people might be more open to hearing the gospel of socialism uh, now, particularly since everybody's feeling this pain. But there is still going to be this effort that we're going to have to undertake to uh, convince other people. And we will not convince everyone. We, we really will not convince everyone. The thing that will convince everyone that socialism will save lives is for socialism to be a thing, to be to come to fruition in this country and actually save people's lives, but dead lives. But that is the struggle. That is the struggle. And when that happens, please never forget that history shows that we are going to have to defend that revolution. Yep. It is not going to be a one and done. Look at what we've done. Woo, we've gotten socialism. Everything is great. No, because the people who had previously profited off of our pain and disenfranchisement and misery and sickness and illness, they're going to want to get those profits back. So we're going to have to defend what we have won. But this is the struggle and it is worth it because y'all, we are worth it. We're so we're worth so much more than what we are enduring in this capitalist, oppressive, imperialist system today. Yeah, definitely. And what Jackie noted is important because I think sometimes, and look, I've had these conversations too with, with, with people, and it can become this knockdown, drag out thing with someone that you care about and you feel like you'll never convince them. And you feel like if you can't convince that person, or this, you know, small group of people who you convince with, then you feel like you can't convince anyone. But here's the thing, y'all. The issue is not to convince people in the twos and fews, yeah. right? Now, maybe you can get through to your cousin or your mother or whoever it is that, that, that's close to you that you're trying to convince. Maybe you can, but if you don't, that's fine. Because we're talking about a class, our class, that has to be organized. You know what I mean? And so that doesn't require uh, uh, every single individual. It's going to require a lot of people now. Don't don't get me wrong. We are going to have to move people in the millions to bring about a change in this country. We should have no delusions about that, right? It's going to be a very difficult thing. But if we have the right vehicle that's in place, If we build the ship before the storm, then we're better prepared to weather that storm when it comes. And we'll only get to that point if we organize now. You know what I mean? And so this, I think, is how we really should be sort of uh, 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 thinking and orienting ourselves towards this moment and in the things that we should be doing. And I know it can be easy to get uh, frustrated when you feel like you can't, you know, convince uh, this or that person. But you see, this is the benefit of joining an organization and being part of a mass effort or a collective effort that is doing all these things that we are uh, uh, talking about. So it's deeper 
than the twos and fews, and that we're talking about moving people in in the masses and reaching a critical mass to really be able to to strike a blow, excuse me, against this uh, ruling class of the capitalist system here in the United States. And so make no mistake that all of us are going to have to operate at a higher level than we are. We're going to have to study harder. We're going to have to organize better. We're going to have to, you know, make the uh, uh, adjustments in our lifetime and lifestyles and things like that as we need to, to be able to put ourselves in a position to be able to actually to do this work. We'll have to be remade if we hope to remake this country and to change the system that governs it. But we'll only do that. If we're organized, but we want to thank you all so much for joining us today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back tomorrow with an all new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.